You're listening to Let's Talk Creation, the science podcast that's just for you. Well, welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Creation with Paul Garner and Todd Wood. I'm Paul Garner. And I'm Todd Wood. And uh, last time we were having a fascinating conversation with Dr. Steve Golmer from Cedarville University uh, about the vapor canopy theory. And uh, we've probably shocked our listeners because um, we've, we, we've, we've kind of broken all of their illusions, haven't we, about the vapor canopy model? Yeah, I'm sure we're, uh, we're going to I'm sure we're getting a lot of uh, um, disappointed emails or comments. But I thought but I thought. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry that we don't keep you up to date, but stick with us and we'll try to we'll try to let you down easy. <laughs> yeah, and today we're going to we're we're going to build on um the conversation last time. Uh and actually have a think about some of the more recent modeling work that has been done uh on uh the climate of the earth uh particularly after the flood. And we want to think about uh, the Ice Age. And this is another area where we, we know that um, Steve has done a, a lot of interesting work recently. Uh, so th- this is going to be a fascinating conversation, I think. Now, Steve, um, here, here we are. We're going to talk about the Ice Age. And I think the first question that we need to answer uh, is, was there really an Ice Age and how do we know? Um, because it's it's all very well talking about sort of modeling post-flood climates and, you know, how, how do we model the growth of ice sheets after the flood? But how do we know that there really was an ice age anyway? Uh, what What's the evidence for the ice age? Well, probably uh, a couple of that come to mind for me is the uh, fact that you have erratic boulders, large boulders that could not be moved around just through fast moving waters. Uh, you also have displaced material over hundreds of miles. Uh, I live in southwestern Ohio, and we are in a region which was considered glaciated uh, during the last glacial maximum. Uh, we have gold in Greene County. Uh, you don't think about that, but it actually is gold that was drugged down by a glacier uh, from essentially north of the Great Lakes. Uh, into this area. Now, the gold is just uh, a very fine placer gold, but it's there all the same. Uh, Uh, Are you rich because of this gold, or have you been mining gold, panning for gold? We actually had a student uh, uh, do a project to find out actually how much gold was in the uh, glacial pill that was drugged down here, and uh, you're not going to get yourself rich. Uh, You can be more gainfully employed with other other jobs. Oh, all right, I guess. So um, you also have striations on rocks uh, through, essentially, if you have a large boulder being drug across a a rocky surface, it's going to leave striations. Uh, And so you have kettles. Uh, Kettles are where you have uh, significant depressions in the ground. And it's primarily because you had a huge uh, amount of ice there at that point, and it has since uh, melted away. You have what are called moraines. Moraines are, as a glacier moves, it leaves a pile of rubble on its periphery, and it has a terminal moraine where uh, when the uh, glacier comes to a, uh, let's say, to its end, where it melts away faster than the ice can uh, come and replenish it, it will act like a conveyor belt. 
and deposit a bunch of debris at the very end of the glacier. And we have all those type of features here in southwestern Ohio. I extend over in Indiana, Illinois, Iowa. And uh, of course, we don't have glaciers in the Great Lake region currently. Uh, and so there must have been a time when there was significant ice uh, extending clear down into the Midwest of the United States. And if you even look in Europe, um, there is evidences, I think, probably in England, northern England, Scotland, uh, probably, um, well, Scandinavian, there's already a lot of glaciated uh, features there, but you would have some of those features extended much further south in Europe than are currently uh, associated with glaciers. Uh, right now, if you uh, are in, I would assume in Europe, uh, your glaciers are somewhat restricted to the Alps, uh, mm -hmm. but you would have glacial features extended well beyond the Alps uh, that you could cite as being from a ice age. Yeah, we, we've got all of those features here in Europe. We've got glaciated landforms, you know, that were formed by glacial erosion up in the north. And we've got glacial sediments and erratic boulders and all of those same kinds of features here in Europe. So we, we know that the ice has left its mark on, on the landscape around us. Yeah. And you and you can say this because because you can go to actual glaciers that are still alive now around now whatever you call it and you can see these features there is that right. what you're telling me right so when you find something that looks like a kettle or a moraine in ohio you can say well this must be a glacier thing is that is that what you're trying to describe okay i'm, I'm, I'm trying to follow the argument here so okay. there have been some people that have tried to explain these features through water uh water erosion and other uh, natural physical processes. But again, because we have enough uh, experience with glaciers and glaciology, uh, the features are very distinctive. Mm. All right. So what can we say then, Steve, from a creationist perspective about when the Ice Age must have happened? Can we kind of constrain when in, in biblical history, where, where in the book of Genesis would the Ice Age have happened? Because I, I, I don't remember reading about the Ice Age in Genesis 1 to 11. So, you know, where, where does it kind of fit, do you think? You know, it's one of these uh, features that we see physically, but we have no direct evidence in Scripture. Uh, we can maybe infer the best place where it will fall. Uh, again, as I look at it, I would say this is a post-flood feature. Uh, there have been some that would try to associate uh, a lot of these features with maybe the result of the flood or maybe even uh, during or pre-flood features. But um, if you're going to have a worldwide flood and you're having ice features, uh, large uh, layers of ice that are kilometer or kilometer thick, um, ice floats. And so if you have a worldwide flood, any ice features you're going to have would end up by being floating during the flood and then would have to uh, make landfall or uh, end up somewhere as the what flood waters recede. Uh, again, that assumes that maybe the ice sheets were dropped there as, as a result of the flood. I think going back to our previous podcast, um, there was this issue of Dillo's book explaining possibly the freezing uh, or the rapid freezing of the mammoths uh, in Siberia, et cetera, as being maybe uh, what happened at the very end of the flood. So there have been a number of models that have been proposed, but it is 
recognizable that at least what we associate with um, the more recent ice age features or glaciated features, uh, they're all Cenozoic and later. So as a result, uh, that would be for creationists, we would associate that with uh, at the terminus of the flood and after the flood. Now, there may be some disagreement in uh, different places uh, amongst young earth creationists as to where that flood boundary is. But I think in general, there's an agreement that uh, amongst all uh, young earth creation organizations that it seems like the ice age is a post-flood feature, not a late flood, a light flood feature. But I may be wrong on that. And we're kind of talking, aren't we, about ice age features that are uh, on the surface of, of the earth. They're, they're, the, the landscapes that we're talking about that have been glaciated, uh, they sit on top of um, what we think of as, uh, as creationists as flood sediments. So it makes sense that this is something that happened, you know, after those flood sediments were deposited, after that the flood had occurred. So I, I think I think most creationists, as you say, uh, are agreed that this is a post-flood phenomenon. Right. So when you when you mention these, do you call them glacial erratics, the boulders that mm-hmm. move? Um, are some of those flood rocks? Do you know? It... Yeah, you can you can match up a lot of these erratics to the that that's how we know that they've moved, right? Because you can you can match them up to the source. So we 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 know where they came from, and we know that they've been moved, you know, a certain distance. And uh, those rocks can be of various ages. That, that they can they can be uh, post flood rocks or flood rocks or or even maybe creation week rocks that have been eroded, and then boulders of those rocks have been moved. By but the if glaciers. The, but if it is this moving a flood rock, then the flood must have formed the rock first, right? Exactly. Yeah. As it stands. So sure. that, at least that portion of the glaciation or whatever, that must yeah. be post-flood. Yeah. Okay, cool. Just clarifying for my understanding. Yeah, sure. So I think everybody basically is pretty much agreed, you know, creationists and non-creationists, that there was this event called uh, the Ice Age. Um, But there are some quite significant differences, I think, in how creationists and non-creationists think about the Ice Age. Um, You know, what are some of those those differences? How how would a a creationist Ice Age model differ from uh, conventional ideas about the Ice Age? I think it's the age issue is really the defining factor here. Uh, If you look at um, where we would place the flood, uh, somewhere around maybe 2500 BC, is that about a good ballpark estimate to throw it in? Uh, So we're talking about, what, uh, 4500 years ago, roughly. Uh, We know their ice sheets aren't here currently. So how do you put a significant ice uh, age event in that time frame. If you look at the secular community, uh, community and their interpretation, they would say that the last ice age uh, somewhat was uh, receding about 10,000 years ago. So we're talking about something that maybe is two times the time scale that we would currently think of. And that would be a receding ice age from the secular models. Uh, and they would look at uh, different evidences that they would feel that there have been multiple ice ages, and through that would uh, possibly posit 
uh, a cycle of ice ages occurring over hundreds of thousands of years as opposed to 10,000 years. So age is really the primary factor. And so as a um, scientist and trying to model the feasibility of this, uh, we really need to think through, is there a mechanism that would allow there to be an ice age that would form post-flood in a fairly small time period? Mm. And uh, you mentioned there that in the conventional model, um, there have been successive sort of glacial interglacial cycles. So this is this is not just one one event. That that there have been multiple um, glaciations over the last you know few million years. Uh, what are some of the evidences that are um, typically talked about, uh, you know, as evidence for this sort of multiple glaciation kind of model? Well, that's probably the weak point for me right now. I've not uh, really studied through the details of multiple glaciations and the evidences for it. Uh, just essentially using my intuition, which may true, uh, prove false, um, is the fact that uh, probably you would age, uh, let's say date some features as older because it seems like there's another feature superimposed on top of it. Mm -hmm. uh, it may be that something looks older because it has more significant erosion. And so I think if you look at the multiple, uh, multiple ice ages, you will find that they will uh, or they will, uh, on a map, at least in the United States, show where each of the ice ages extended further south and there are different locations. So that would imply that there are terminal moraines at different locations and I would assume that some of these terminal moraines are more eroded and maybe washed out due to a later ice age coming through and maybe uh, wiping out some of those features. So I think okay. that would probably be the rationale as to uh, the justification for multiple ice ages. You're talking about hundreds, hundreds of thousands or millions of years ago. How do they know? How do they know that? Or why do they claim that? I mean, I can understand if you have like one glacial moraine going this way and another one going this way, then obviously you've got two different glaciers at two different times, but how do they know it's a hundred thousand? Is it carbon dating? Is it something like that? What's, what's the basis of that? Any, any prehistorical uh, dating methods, and I'm talking prehistorical, not in terms of cavemen, et cetera, but I'm talking uh, before recorded history and at least in the scientific realm where we actually start attributing numbers and values, you're talking maybe just several hundred years. So if you're trying to infer uh, ages of things uh, before people have actually observed these events, uh, we use proxy data. And so as far as trying to reconstruct climate, uh, we'll look at um, probably one of the most common uh, methods is what is called uh, tree rings. And we will look at the growth rings on a tree and each successive ring will imply a year of growth of the tree. And then by looking at uh, old forest stands, uh, we can then try to chain together um, a history, at least as far as uh, how many years back we can infer when these trees were growing. Uh, we then associate, let's say the thickness of a tree ring to maybe drought conditions as well as temperatures and then from that try to recreate a climate. Uh, along with that, you can do seafloor uh, sediments. You can also do lake bed sediments. Um, 
People will also look at soils and try to see how soils maybe have developed. Uh, the nice thing about the Midwest uh, in the United States, it's very fertile soil, but that's because we've got all of Canada's soil uh, brought down here to help enrich our own soil. So uh, they will use different proxy methods uh, to infer when things happened or at least in what order they happened. And then of course, uh, if you have tree rings, you can then also do some association with carbon-14 uh, to try associating some numerical value but in any of these dating methods, uh, you're already you're automatically coming against three assumptions. You're assuming that the rates at which processes are occurred are known or can be accounted for. You are assuming that you can infer what the original amount is, or at least the initial conditions on which this is based. And then also you're assuming that if uh, the system is either isolated or undisturbed, and if it is disturbed, that you can somehow account for that disruption. And so you essentially, are building a model of Earth history based on current understanding of physical processes, but then assuming that at least certain processes are dominant and can be extrapolated backwards in time. Now, if you have something that is catastrophic occurring, all of a sudden your assumptions of a regular process is going to be disrupted, and therefore it will affect your assumption or actually your conclusions uh, as far as how old something is. And we also uh, have a lot of data now from the seafloor. And this has kind of fed into the conventional thinking, hasn't it, about the Ice Age. So we, we have um, cores of seafloor sediment that contain uh, the microscopic remains of marine organisms. And by analysing uh, the oxygen isotopes, uh, the ratio of oxygen 18 to oxygen 16 in the shells of these uh, tiny marine organisms, uh, we can actually infer something about the temperature of the water in which they they were growing those shells. And uh, this has also kind of given us a, uh, a kind of a proxy for understanding these glacial interglacial um, cycles that, that are then inferred. We seem to have warmer and cooler um, periods in, in the in the seafloor cores. Is, is that correct? That's yeah. correct. And so if you look, you will see that uh, there does seem to be a period in the past where global temperatures are much warmer than they are currently today. Uh, we also have indication where it's noticeably colder. And so the, uh, the assumption is that during these colder periods is when you actually have the ice age uh, dominant and uh, any kind of permafrost and um, ice features would extend to the lower latitudes as opposed to being constrained to the higher latitudes as they currently are today. Mm -hmm. So we've got these uh, the, these different sort of models of the Ice Age. We, we, we have the conventional model, which says that uh, there were, in fact, a whole succession of glacial interglacial cycles over a long period of time. Uh, I, I understand that the conventional view is that these were driven by... Um, changes in the Earth's orbital parameters that then affect the amount of sunlight reaching the Earth, Earth's surface, and then various feedback mechanisms kind of amplify this and generate these, these cooler and warmer cycles. And in the cooler cycles, you get the growth of the ice sheets. So that's kind of the conventional model. Um, and then we have a, a creationist model where um, 
the the ice age or the ice advance is actually a very short-lived rapid event with perhaps very dynamic ice sheets that are surging out across uh across you know the the uh, northern latitudes and melting back perhaps and then surging again and producing what in the conventional model is then being interpreted as evidence of multiple multiple glaciations is that right so so those are the two models so so in the um in, in the creationist model i mean we've talked about it being a kind of rapid event how how rapid are we talking how 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 long did it take um do we think for the the ice sheets to uh, to accumulate and then to melt back so from beginning to end how long was the ice age okay well uh probably um if you go back to Morrison Whitcomb's uh, book, Genesis Flood, uh, they would mention an ice age and possible mechanisms for it. I don't think they necessarily attribute a certain time frame for it, uh, but I think there was an, a certain assumption that uh, you would have to have the ice age fitting in between the flood and uh, where recorded history starts uh, telling us what the climate conditions are at different locations around the earth. Uh, as a result, um, Michael Ord, I think back in 1979, uh, tried to put some numbers and uh, some uh, atmospheric science uh, knowledge uh, to this uh, and came up with a rapid ice age model. In there, I think he proposes that the ice age maybe occurred over the course of maybe about 500 years. Mm -hmm. So you would go from uh, the ice age, or I should say from the flood, uh, ice age extends for about 500 years after that. Of course, by the time you get 500 years after the flood, you're getting up to the time of Abraham. And so a lot of times uh, the assumption is to somewhat fit it into that time frame. Um, now, personally, I feel that um, we don't necessarily need to fit it into that type of a time frame. Uh, the reason why is if you look at... Uh, a lot of the history that's going on in the world, uh, from Chinese civilization to Babylonian to Egyptian, all of those are relatively uh, mid to low latitude. And so mm -hmm. if you did have, let's say an ice age, uh, you could still have some significant glaciation going on, let's say in Northern Europe and the United States, uh, even in the time of Abraham. So it could be that we could extend it well beyond a 500 time year time frame. But I know at least in the earlier crea uh, creationist literature, uh, the assumption was to try fitting it in be before the time of Abraham. So, ignorant question again. I I'm, I'm the ignorant person here that knows nothing about physics, but uh, uh, glaciers, the way I've always understood it, they're frozen rivers, at least that's how I've been told. Uh, and that snow falls and packs together into ice and then the ice flows. Mm -hmm. But ice flows very slowly, right? Correct. So can you actually have a glacier that's going to move very far in 500 years? Are we talking about a lot more snow? Are we talking about, is, is this even feasible? Well, as far as distance traveled, I've not done those calculations. I'm not sure. I've, I've run across... Uh, uh, creation of literature that would try to put numbers on that. Uh, again, if you're talking, let's say, from southern Canada to Ohio, and we're talking maybe 500 miles, uh, 500 years, about a mile, a mile a year, 
Uh, is that an unreasonable flow rate? I don't know. Uh, that would assume that the ice sheet was already established, uh, at least according to creationist model and the work uh, that proposed by Michael Ord is that it would be uh, where the ice sheet would establish itself and reach a peak uh, maybe after about three, 400 years and then start dissipating. So it may be that uh, you would have to have things travel a little bit more than one mile an hour or one mile per year, but that would probably be the, the scope of the flow rate. But that would be, that's still pretty slow. Well, I, I, can go, I can go farther than a mile in a year myself. So uh, I guess that's not that terribly fast. Maybe it's fast in terms of the glacial world. And I think probably it is fast with regards to the glacial world. Okay. And I think in Mike Ord's model, um, you have to envisage ice sheets building up simultaneously across very large areas. Oh, yes, correct. Yeah. So it's so it's not just so it's the not that it, builds, that it suddenly appears in Canada yeah. and then rolls down to Ohio. No, exactly. It's, okay. And, it, and it's yeah. So it doesn't just kind of form up in a mountain somewhere and 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 then has to kind of um, you know travel right. all that distance. There's uh, ice building up simultaneously across big areas. Mm -hmm. But there's also but, been some interesting work that I think Mark Horstemeyer and others have done looking at um, sort of modeling the surging of uh, glaciers uh, in, in a kind of post-flood model and showing that actually glaciers can move surprisingly quickly at times, particularly if they have wet bases, I think. So, right. You know, they, they can kind of form and then, then actually quite rapidly sort of surge out over, over uh, sort of virgin terrain. Yeah. And I think that's one of the concerns even with uh, Greenland right now is how much water is actually flowing out under the base of the ice pack in Greenland and how does that affect the actual flow of the ice? Uh, so if you are in a melting stage, you're gonna have a much more mobile glacier than if you are in some kind of an equilibrium condition where the glacier has uh, somewhat is flowing, but at a rate so that it sustains itself over long periods of time. Yeah. Now that's probably a good place for us just to take a break and, uh, and, and have some ads. And then when we come back, uh, I'd like us to talk some more about uh, the history of modeling of the Ice Age by creationists and, and uh, talk a bit more about that. So we'll see you in a few moments. You've been listening to Todd and Paul Talk Creation. If you'd like more information about any of the subjects discussed in the show, please visit us at coresci.org podcast. That's coresci.org podcast. If you'd like more information on sponsorship opportunities, or maybe you'd like to have a product or book reviewed or discussed on our podcast, please contact us at podcast at corsi.org. That's podcast at corsi.org. Are you confused about creation and evolution? Are you intimidated by people who tell you that only morons believe in creationism and that evolution is a proven fact? What if these challenges aren't merely problems to be solved, but an opportunity or an invitation to a lifetime of discipleship seeking God? This is the subject of The Quest, Exploring Creation's Hardest Problems, a book written by me, Todd Wood, and it presents a unique perspective on creation and evolution that encourages faith, commitment, and curiosity in the face of uncertainty. Science and biblical creation walk hand in hand as we explore God's creation. God calls us to experience the joy of questions and the beauty of his handiwork on the quest. 
It's available today at Corsi.org slash quest. Okay, well, uh, welcome back. And uh, I'd like to sort of pick up our conversation about creationist Ice Age modelling by just kind of backtracking to um, Wickham and Morris in 1961. So 1961, they published the Genesis Flood. And uh, they propose, um, without a great deal of detail, it has to be said, but they propose this idea that the Ice Age... Uh, was a kind of rapid, short-lived event that happened uh, after the flood. Um, But it wasn't really until uh, the work of Michael Ord that flesh began to be put on those those bones. So I I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about who Mike Ord is and uh, the monograph that he published, I think it was in 1990, and what his, basically a bit about his model of the Ice Age. Okay. First of all, Michael Ord is a professional meteorologist, uh, worked for the Weather Service for a number of years, uh, became interested in um, how he could use his training in meteorology to uh, understand uh, some things with regards to uh, the post-flood world. And of course, uh, Ice Age is probably in my mind, um, his first most notable work in that area. And so uh, reading Morrison Whitcomb, uh, they would propose that at the end of the flood, you probably had, uh, because of the violence of the flood, you had relatively warm oceans. Uh, There would be volcanism uh, across the globe. And as a result, there'd be a lot of aerosols from the um, volcanic eruptions. Now, volcanic aerosols are a little bit different than volcanic ash. Uh, Ash tends to settle out uh, very quickly, but the aerosols tend to be more sulfur dioxide and chemical compounds that will form small particulate material that gets up into the upper portions of the atmosphere and then reside up there for months and maybe even for years. And then, of course, also at the end of the flood, uh, you would have had the earth somewhat denuded of vegetation. And so the albedo or the reflective properties of the earth's surface would probably be different than they are currently. And so all of those factors were proposed by uh, in the Genesis flood by Morrison Woodcomb. Uh, what Orr did was then to focus in on the Northern hemisphere and looking at the distribution of the continents uh, close to what would be considered a modern distribution. And then assuming that the oceans were warm, how much evaporation of water vapor would there be And if you have uh, this much water vapor being formed and then uh, wind currents uh, driving this water vapor off of the warm oceans over the continents, and because the continents are, have a different albedo or reflectivity, uh, they would possibly be colder than the oceans and you would have precipitation forming. Uh, Over time, if the temperatures are cool enough, that precipitation instead of being in the form of rain would then become uh, in the form of snow and you might have this ongoing conveyor belt of water vapor being driven over the land uh, surfaces and snowing out. Uh, and I think I've heard some, I, don't, I would not attribute this to Ord, that maybe even you had snow even persisting during the summers. So instead of having, uh, let's say a snowpack forming during the winter and melting back during the summer, uh, you really do, don't get a significant break during the summer at the higher latitudes, and this snow just continue. The snowpack continues to accumulate uh, month after month after month over centuries to form the current ice pack. Hmm. 
And so Ord published um, his model in this monograph in 1990, an ice age caused by the Genesis flood. And uh, it was really a kind of seminal work, wasn't it? It really uh, kicked off a, a lot of creationist work in, in, this, uh, in this particular area. Um, Mike Ord's work um, in developing this kind of conceptual model um, was he, he did some calculations, you know, it, it, that, that he presents in his book, um, but he didn't really do any computer modeling. Is, is that correct? That is correct. Uh, he set his numbers based on how much uh, water vapor would actually form in the atmosphere. I think his initial assumptions were to have ocean temperatures around 30 degrees Celsius. Uh, and then he uh, did calculations as far as snowfall rates to see if you could accumulate an ice sheet. And I think uh, in his model, he would have an ice sheet that would be 400 meters thick at its peak. And as I, I think in the earlier segment here, uh, that the model would probably uh, develop that over several centuries. And of course, the ice age being completed within about a half a millennia. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't want to say back of the envelope calculations because he did much more than that. Um, but he took the fundamental equations that um, meteorologists use for determining evaporation rates, uh, as well as uh, how much uh, water vapor can be held in the atmosphere at different temperatures. And then uh, did a feasi uh, initial feasibility study. And that really shows up in that monograph that you uh, presented to us there. Uh, it wasn't until um, Larry Vardaman at the Institute of Creation Research, along with some graduate students of his, uh, decided that they really needed to model this out. Uh, when you start doing computer modeling, uh, if you have limited resources, you do what are called one-dimensional models or maybe two-dimensional models. A one-dimensional model is where you just look at a point on the Earth's surface and you look straight up in the atmosphere and look at the condition. And on our previous show, when we talked about the um, vapor canopy and the heating, that really uh, can be done with a one-dimensional model. Uh, if you have a little bit more computing resources, you do a two-dimensional model. Not only do you look up directly overhead in the atmosphere and look at different layers of the atmosphere, but then you would say different latitudes have different behaviors. So you go from the North Pole to the South Pole through the equator, and now you have a kind of a line going from the North Pole to the South Pole, and then looking up, so that gives you a two-dimensional surface to try doing modeling. Mm -hmm. What uh, Vardaman noticed was that uh, the Institute of uh, NCAR, National Center for Atmospheric Research, uh, they were in the process of developing a, essentially a three-dimensional climate model the three-dimensional climate model now, instead of just having latitude and um, vertical layers in the atmosphere, you also include longitude. So now you can map the whole Earth's surface in terms of latitude, longitude points. Uh, each of those locations on the Earth's surface can now be modeled or measure, uh, you can measure physical properties, uh, air, uh, air density, air temperature, wind direction, how much uh, water vapor is in the atmosphere, and then do that for every single point on the Earth's surface. Uh, and this model is essentially what we do with our modern day weather models. Uh, the weather models uh, break up the Earth's surface into a grid. It, lay, uh, it also slices up the atmosphere into layers. And those three-dimensional points are then calculated time and time again based on what their neighbors are doing and what's entering that location and what's leaving that location 
to make our predictions. And if you looked at the uh, success of the National Weather Service of the United States or the European Climate uh, uh, Center over um, in Europe, uh, weather models have uh, improved significantly over the last half century. Uh, the first what um, the first weather prediction was done by hand and it took something on the order of several weeks to make a 12-hour forecast uh, now all of a sudden with computers we can make a global simulation uh, calculation let's say out to nine days and do that in well under 12 hours probably every three hours we can do that so the computer, uh, computational power available to us has increased so dramatically that we can improve our models. In fact, uh, it was announced here by our National Weather Service in the States here about two months ago, they were changing the fundamental calcula uh, calculation process on how they do their weather model so that they don't get uh, some of these artifacts that they use because the computer was slower, they had to use little tricks to uh, uh, improve the computing speed. Now we say we don't need to use those tricks. We can actually do a little bit better uh, result. And the anticipation is that precipitation forecasts are going to be greatly improved uh, because we don't have to do these shortcuts. I see. So how how can we apply these kinds of models then to understanding what was happening with climate after Noah's flood? I mean, just, just kind of talk us through that process. How, how do we actually, you know, what do, what do you do with one of these climate models to try to simulate uh, climates of the distant past? And, and how do we know that the results they're giving us are realistic, right? I mean, how do we validate these, these models? And what do they look like? I mean, when yeah. you sit down at your computer, is it like a video game? Yeah, you, you have a little controller and you, and you, what, what do you do? What do you actually do? That's what I want to know. Okay, well, uh, lots of things folded in there, but let's try. Okay. First of all, it's not a video game. Okay. Uh, probably the closest thing you have is there's a video game that came out probably about two decades ago called Sim Earth. And in Sim Earth, you would have the Earth's surface, you'd have different locations on the Earth's surface, you could then plant trees or put cities in, et cetera, and change certain parameters and then see how it behaves. Well, if you've played any of these sim games, uh, they don't act in real time. Now, you know, they put the little animations there and you see cars driving around Sim City uh, <laughs> to make it look like it is. But essentially these models, you set up the Earth's surface and then you punch a button and you come back hours later and find out what happens. Uh, you end up by processing the data and think of again in terms of the analogy of a weather forecast, uh, just as the weather person gets out there to show you what the weather is gonna be tonight and tomorrow and the next couple of days, they show you these beautiful weather maps. It really is just a color map of different properties of the Earth's atmosphere at, diff um, at different times so that you can see the progression of precipitation, wind, speeds, temperatures, et cetera. Uh, but it's, you set up the model, you let it go. Now to actually set up the model, there's a couple things that go. I already mentioned the fact that you break up the earth into a grid, a three-dimensional grid and the atmosphere. Uh, you also incorporate equations that uh, capture how the actual physics behaves. So you, you know, put Newton's second law in there, F equals MA, force equals mass times acceleration. Uh, you also incorporate in uh, 
the ideal gas law, PV equals NRT. So as the temperature increases, it adjusts the volume of the air. It also adjusts the pressure. So you have a series of governing equations that capture the physics uh, that we have verified in laboratory settings. The same equations that give us successful weather models are the exact same ones they use in climate models. So just realize that if you start questioning the veracity of a climate model, uh, at the very base, the equations that are being used are the same ones that give us very good weather predictions today. So now, what you do is, what do you do about past climates or uh, past history? So what you do is you assume what the earth looked like in the past. Uh, the way we would do that for um, climate, uh, paleoclimatology is they would look at all the proxy data that's out there. They would look at ice cores. They would look at uh, uh, seafloor sediments. They would look at tree rings and they would say, this is what we think the temperature of the earth was a million, or not a million, but a thousand years ago, 2,000, 3,000 years ago, they would then initialize their model with that and then let it run over time and see what the physics give you. And then the assumption is that as you take these previous conditions, if you run it, eventually it will settle in on current day conditions. Hmm. Uh, so if you're trying to do ice ages, and there's a number of paleoclimatologists that are trying to model the ice age, and see why you might have the different surges of the ice ages or the uh, different conditions, uh, they will set up what they think the earth looked like 10,000 years ago and then run their climate model to see how it plays out. And for uh, creationists, we do the exact same thing. We use the same models. Uh, the one that Vardaman used was used by the National Center of Atmospheric Research. He then um, uh, ported it to a Linux system and then ran it and then ran simulations. So instead of assuming that the ocean temperatures were close to current day temperatures and putting ice sheets down to see how the ice sheets behave, Bartman went and uh, said, I'm going to initialize the Earth's surface to have warm ocean. I'm going to initialize the Earth's surface to have uh, this kind of ice cover or lack of ice cover and then run the climate model to see what happens. And so as a result, Vardaman was able to start putting not just a you know, flesh and bones on the model proposed by Morris and Whitcomb, as Ord did, but now we can actually see two-dimensionally on the Earth's surface and then also over time how things would progress. So the two, so the three-dimensional model. So you said, did you say that Ord made one-dimensional models, basically? No, well, Ord, uh, as far as doing his calculation for evaporation and precipitation, you could treat them like one-dimensional. Okay, okay. So then Vardaman comes along with a three-dimensional model, right? So he's yeah. got the so surface of the Earth. Two-dimensional Earth and then the atmosphere. And Earth. then the atmosphere. And he comes up with, under his assumptions there, he gets rainfall that's or precipitation, snowfall, rainfall, that is comparable to what Ord suggested would happen and would be needed to make a rapid ice age. Is that right. basically the idea? Okay. So Steve, um, tell us then about some of the work that you've been doing over the last 15 years um, to kind of take on and, and develop the work that Larry Vardaman did. 
because I I know you've you know you've you've got these more sophisticated models that you can you can now use. Um, what 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 are the kinds of things that you're finding? You're you're starting off, as I understand it, with these warm post flood oceans, uh, thirty degrees. Is that right? About thirty degree temperature oceans. Um, and what you're trying to do, as I understand it, is you're, you're trying to see, you know, where does where does the precipitation fall? Uh, you know, where where is uh, where is the ice likely to build up? Um, how quickly are the, are the oceans cooling down? Are, the, are these the kinds of questions that you're you're dealing with? So so just tell us something about the the results that you've achieved so far with your, your own work. Okay. First of all, I, I want to uh, distinguish uh, the work I did compared to Vardaman. It's not just the fact that I could do things at a little higher resolution, but fundamentally the models have gone from just modeling the atmosphere to modeling the atmosphere, also the cryosphere, which would be the ice sheets, as well as the oceans themselves. So Vardaman, he would prescribe the surface of the ocean, of the, would prescribe the temperature of the ocean surface uh, and then run the model but he was only looking at what's happened with the atmosphere. Uh, since then, National Center, uh, NCAR, National Center for Atmospheric Research has come up with what's called a coupled model where you have an atmospheric model as well as an ice model, as well as a land surface model, as well as an ocean model, and they all interoperate with each other. Initially, I was planning on using that particular model to follow on, on, Ord's, uh, on Vardaman's work but it ends up that the components were a bit difficult and unwieldy to put together because that's not my full-time job. And so I found that there was another model being generated at the Goddard Institute for Space Studies that incorporated the same components, but it was in a single package as opposed to separate packages that you had to fold together. Uh, it ends up that uh, that particular model was also designed so that I could use some off-of-the-shelf uh, compiling software and be able to run that. So I found the learning curve was much better to do use the GIST model than the NCAR model. And then um, my first runs were just to verify uh, the conditions that Vardaman had. So I set a fixed surface temperature, ran the model, and I got very comparable results to uh, what Barman had. And this showed up in my 2013 uh, ICC paper. And then to go beyond that, once I vetted against Barman, I then incorporated the dynamic ocean. So now the ocean can dynamically cool as time goes by, and then look at how the, let's say there's certain locations where there's upwelling within the ocean because the, warm, the waters are warmer, other places where there's a downwelling because as the surface waters cool, they uh, cause a sinking. And you start seeing a dynamic uh, ocean circulation, which is going to be true uh, in post-flood. And the conclusions that came from my 2019 paper was that 30 degrees Celsius water is way too hot. Uh, it ends up that uh, once you put a dynamic ocean in, uh, it gives you a much warmer equator so you start with 30 degrees Celsius uh, water from the North Pole to the equator and to the South Pole. Uh, but after you've run the model for about six years, you find that the waters at the equator are getting up towards uh, 40 to 50 degrees Celsius. Uh, actually, yeah, and which means uh, life becomes untenable Unpleasant. at equatorial regions. <laughs> 
So that means uh, we need to put some more stuff in. So initially, I also with these models, you can put in uh, volcanic aerosols. So by increasing how much uh, aer uh, aerosols exist, actually, I should back up a little bit. When a volcano goes off, uh, it will put dust and ash into the atmosphere. Uh, that dust and ash settles out over the course of several days, but the aerosols will stay there. And those aerosols are known to cause a cooling effect. Uh, they will reflect enough sunlight. They will trap in some infrared radiation from the Earth's surface. So there's a certain warming effect, but the reflective effect is greater than the warming effect. So there's a net cooling that comes from aerosols. So if you can add aerosols in, you can start offsetting this cooling. And so as I started incorporating thicker and thicker aerosols uh, from volcanic eruptions, I was able to somewhat offset this very torrid conditions that started showing up at the equator. But even with a significant aerosol content, um, I just found that the equator was just a bit too toasty. Mm -hmm. So where did Ord get the 30 degree Celsius figure for the temperature of the oceans from? I mean, what, what, what's that based on? And, and, and could it just be that, you know, we need to revise that, that number downwards and start off with warm oceans after the flood, but maybe not that warm? I think initially he, he, did, he chose that number because it gave him a very high evaporation rate on the ocean surface for building up the ice age. Um, in my 2018 paper for the ICC, uh, I ended up by revising those temperatures down to 24 degrees Celsius. And that was on recommendation from others in the uh, Creation Biology Society and Creation Geology Society, where they would say, it seems like the uh, geological evidence from let's say the Cenozoic uh, maybe gives you that temperature as being more reasonable than choosing a 30 degrees Celsius. And again, I ran uh, my computer models. You don't get quite as hot of an equatorial region but the temperatures are still a bit cool, all right? It's still a bit warm. Uh, you have to realize the amount of aerosols I'm putting in the atmosphere uh, essentially gives you a, uh, a, a haze over the skies, not necessarily a pollution haze, but a, um, enough particulate matter that the whole Earth's surface would look like it had uh, altostratus clouds overhead. Now, altostratus clouds are the ones that are thick enough that if you look at the sun, you can kind of see where the sun is and it has kind of a milky appearance, but you really don't get shadows and you don't see the sun clearly. Uh, so if you have that much aerosol content in the atmosphere, uh, that's really gonna disrupt your ability to actually see sun, moon and stars post flood, but it helps to keep the temperatures down in the, into a reasonable bound. Uh, you know, if you start looking at volcanic eruptions like uh, Toba and other major events uh, that have uh, we have evidence of in the geological record, uh, we could possibly see aerosol content of that magnitude actually in the Earth's atmosphere. It's just that you probably don't want that persisting for millennia. Uh, you want that to somewhat dissipate, but it may be that there's a very significant aerosol load in the atmosphere, or at least the high atmosphere. Uh, during the time of the ice ages mm -hmm. okay so so we have this uh sort of issue with uh the the t the uncertainty about the temperature of the post-flood ocean and this problem that you know it becomes a bit uncomfortable at the equator 
Um, what about the actual build-up of ice and the patterns of precipitation? Um, you know, what? How does that look in in these kinds of models? Uh, and that's that's the ongoing pro, uh, issue that I'm working on. Uh, it mm -hmm. Ends up that in Vardaman's model, he had precipitation rates that matched ORD, but uh, there are two issues, and I was finding the same issues in my climate modeling. First of all. Is precipitation in the form of water as opposed to ice or snow. The second issue is the precipitation occurs primarily over the oceans, not over the land masses. So it ends up that uh, if you have a large temperature difference between the continents and the oceans, um, you essentially get a land breeze. So if you've ever been to the, uh, the ocean front during the daytime, you get this nice sea breeze coming in because the ocean is cooler than the land surface. And because the sun is beating down on the beach and on the sand and on the ground, uh, you get rising air. And as that air rises, the cool air from the ocean comes pouring in and gives you a nice refreshing breeze. Uh, it ends up that during the nighttime, this cycle re uh, re uh, reverses itself because the land cools down quicker than the ocean and so now you get a breeze that comes off the land out to the ocean because the land is cooler. Same thing happens over ice packs. Uh, so if you look at the catabatic winds over Greenland, uh, over ice sheets, uh, those are primarily because of cold air that's more dense. It is flowing off of the ice pack. And how do you get your precipitation to move far enough inland to actually precipitate and to deposit snow and ice on the land as opposed to over the ocean? Um, okay. My current work on modeling and future work is primarily to address that issue. It's called a thermal circulation. Uh, Ord, in his proposal, was assuming that the global circulation, so if you look at uh, around the equator, you have what are called easterly winds. Those are the ones that primarily drive our hurricanes across from the coast of Africa into the Caribbean uh, in our hemisphere. Uh, if you get to the mid-latitudes, you primarily have westerly winds that are um, in that particular cell. And if you get into the polar regions, you go back to easterlies. So Ord's proposal was that these easterly winds would drive that precipitation inland to cause the precipitation to form. Uh, it ends up that the temperature difference between the warm oceans and the cold land, uh, it actually causes the thermal circulation to overwhelm that global circulation and you get the precipitation over the water. So my proposal right now is I have, I, I need to reduce the temperatures significantly, even from 24 degrees Celsius. Uh, in my mind, I'm thinking of running things more on the order of 10 to maybe even five degrees Celsius oceans, uh, still noticeably warmer than current day, but that thermal circulation won't be nearly as acute. And as a result, the global circulation can drive, I'm anticipating can drive that precipitation inland also with a colder ocean or uh, an ocean that's uh, much cooler, you won't have the, uh, you'll actually be able to get temperatures that are cold enough to form snow over the continents. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it, at some point there's gonna be a break point where the atmospheric temperatures become cool enough that you can get precipitation over the continents. Mm -hmm. uh, so what is the modern, I mean, you've been talking 30 Celsius and 24 Celsius. Right. What is the modern, I don't know, average ocean temperature? What, what, how, how does that compare? Uh, it ends up that uh, where you have, uh, I think where, um, 
salt water in the oceans actually starts freezing is at negative two Celsius. So if you're looking at current uh, ice sheets, et cetera, the oceans that are in the North Pole are going to be below zero. Uh, if you're above zero, you're gonna have an ice-free Arctic, but you will still have temperatures that are cold enough that you could get evaporation. Now the evaporation isn't gonna be as vigorous as in Ord's model uh, because the amount of water vapor that occurs in the air is temperature dependent. Uh, and it's not just a linear effect, it's an exponential effect. So if you double the temperature of, or if you increase the temperature of the, uh, of the air a little bit, the amount of water vapor it can hold increases significantly. So that's gonna be a balance point. And if, if indeed I find that I can start seeing ice sheets build up at these cooler temperatures, then the question that we'll have to revisit is, uh, what is the duration of the, uh, of the ice age? What is the depth of the ice sheets at the, uh, at the uh, let's say the most mature state of the ice age and uh, what impact that would have with regards to our historical records um, that would pro provide some bounds to that. that. It's very interesting that your, 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 your model is kind of driving you to consider perhaps lower um, temperatures for, for the initial condition, you know, with, with the post-flood oceans, because the oxygen isotope data that we talked about earlier from the microscopic marine organisms in the deep sea cores suggests that um, those kinds of temperatures that, 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 you know, maybe 10, 12, 13 degrees seem more reasonable for the temperature of the oceans than 24, 30 degrees Celsius. So we do seem to have some constraints, unless we've got a good reason to think that those oxygen isotope data somehow need to be recalibrated in a creationist model. We do have some constraints, I think, that perhaps sort of point us towards cooler temperatures. So so it'll be really interesting to, to see what comes out of your modeling there. Yeah, I'm excited to see what's going to happen, too. Uh, I think that's yes. part of the interest. Uh, I, I mean, that's one of the things I like about science is the fact that we can come up with a model, we can have a hypothesis, but at some point we have to test it out. And yeah, yeah. when we deal with historical, uh, historical aspects of science, whether it's geology, climatology, et cetera, um, whenever we try to recreate the past or predict the future, um, our assumptions become crucial in what we predict is gonna happen. Uh, the nice thing about climate models is it gives us a constraint as to physically what is plausible versus what's not plausible. Uh, back on the uh, issue of our, our session last time on the canopy, it was the same thing with regards to radiative transfer. Uh, we could propose a, uh, a, uh, a canopy, but when it comes down to it, we have to see, is this plausible on the basis of our current understanding of science? Now, our understanding of science will change, it will be refined, but there are some aspects of science that will not be completely overturned. Um, I, I sometimes get the impression from people that, well, you know, that's science today, science you know, 50 years from now is gonna be completely different. Uh, science 50 years from now is still gonna have Newton's second law, F equals MA is still gonna be valid. Um, you're not gonna overturn these things that have been well-established. Uh, gravity behaves the same way for Galileo 500 years ago as it does to us today. And so 
I don't anticipate any significant revolution in that sense, uh, but there may be different mechanisms that we recognize become important that we have overlooked today. Well, this is all really exciting, and it's one of the things I love about um, you know coming along to the Creation Geology Society and Creation Biology Society meetings every summer. You know, we we get a kind of progress report on what's going on with these, these kinds of research projects, and uh, it's always exciting to see what what uh, new is being done and and what what's being discovered. Uh, Todd, we should we should probably start to wind this up. Are, th are there any last things that you wanted to probably, ask yeah. or? No, I, my this point? questions are. I guess my only question, Steve. Uh, I I assume since you're involved with the ICC now that you are working on another article for that, another study for that. Am I right about that? I am. I've oh, good. I've taken about um, a two year pause on my climate modeling. And so I'm planning on uh, getting that spun up this summer. So within two years, when we hit the ICC in 2023, uh, I plan on essentially uh, report on my results of cooler oceans. Uh, they're still warm oceans, but mm -hmm. cooler than what have been modeled in the past and see what the consequences of those are. Excellent. All right. That's great. So that's something to look forward to, isn't it? And um, yeah, well, we're very grateful for your time, Steve, to, to the, the fact that you've been with us for these last couple of episodes. It's been really fascinating. Uh, I've learned a lot and, uh, you know, it's really interesting. We, we look forward to seeing what else um, comes out from your research. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me to join you. Well, it's our pleasure. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Well, uh, that's it for another episode. Um, do remember uh, that you can find all of the options for streaming the podcast at corsi.org forward slash podcast. Uh, leave us uh, a review, uh, like our videos and our, um, and our podcast episodes, uh, share them with your friends and uh, make sure that you subscribe. Uh, if you have questions or feedback, we love to hear from you. And uh, you can email your questions to podcast at corsi.org. And uh, finally, uh, don't uh, forget to uh, consider donating to our respective ministries. If you're enjoying the podcast and the content that we're producing, do help us to keep it going. And uh, Todd, how would people donate to Core Academy? You would go to corsi.org. That's C-O-R-E-S-C-I dot O-R-G slash donate. Very simple. Excellent. And uh, likewise, if you'd like to give to Biblical Creation Trust, then you can look up our website, biblicalcreationtrust.org, and there's a donate button on our homepage that will take you to all of the options uh, to give to us. And we do appreciate all of your support. We appreciate all the feedback uh, that we're receiving. And uh, I don't think we know what's coming up in the next episode, do we, Todd? It's going to be a bit of a magical mystery tour. Yeah, <laughs> we got a lot of ideas. We have to sort of settle on what we're going to do, though. But but yeah, but keep the yeah. feedback coming because we may change our plans, too. Yeah. Uh, so that's it for this time. Uh, tune in in uh, another two weeks time for another episode. And until then, take care and see you soon. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Let's Talk Creation. If you have questions, send them to podcast at corsi.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at C-O-R-E 
www.letstalkcreation.org.sci.org. And be sure to let your friends know about Let's Talk Creation. And check us out on social media. Thank you.